Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Hazard Lee, the author of the new book, The Art of Clear Thinking, a stealth fighter pilot's timeless rules for making tough decisions. Some brief background on my guest, Hazard is a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot who began his career flying the F-16. As a flight commander, he led his pilots into combat during one of the most intense periods of the war in Afghanistan. He was then handpicked to fly the F-35, the most advanced and expensive weapon systems in history, which was still in development at the time. In the conversation, Hazard and I discuss deliberate thinking, how to assess problems, choosing a course of action, learning from mistakes, common obstacles to clear thinking, wisdom in daily life, and much more. You can learn more about Hazard at hazardlee.com. And as a retired Air Force veteran myself, it was a real pleasure to have Hazard on the show. So without any further delay, I now bring you the wise and gracious... Hazard Lee. Looks like we're good to go. Hazard Lee, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Josh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. And today we're going to be discussing your new book, The Art of Clear Thinking. And before we get into the book, we generally start with some sort of question of how you had initially came to have an interest in this topic. You can take that any any way you like in the way of flying or clear thinking, but what comes to mind there? I think for me, it all started with aviation. So when I was five years old, I had a chance to go to an air show. This was back in the day when you could hop in the cockpit of these jets. And so I sat in the cockpit of an F-16 and was just mesmerized by it. There are hundreds of buttons. You're sitting on top of this giant rocket ship, the F-16, the seat reclines about 30 degrees back. So, I mean, I was just awed by that. I got to wear a helmet. So five-year-old kid, it looked like a bobblehead. <laughs> and uh, from that point on, I was hooked. Now, there's not a lot of things you can do as a kid. If you're into military aviation, you can memorize the facts, watch the movies, of course, Top Gun. But it wasn't until I was a teenager that I had a chance to fly a, a Cessna 152. I don't know if you're familiar with that kind of plane. It's It's like a flying lawnmower with wings. And so <laughs> I, I lived in Los Alamos, New Mexico, home of the Manhattan Project. It's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And the airfield is built into the mountain, almost like a James Bond runway. And uh, so as soon as you take off, you're over this valley. And so I remember taking off in this, in this Cessna 152 and just being hooked. It was completely different than being a passenger in a jet. You were, you know, if you want to go up, you can go up. Of course, you could go down, you could turn and after that, I knew that was the uh, the path for me, and so I applied to the Air Force Academy. Didn't get in. I got a, a white, crisp white letter I should have known from the academy, brought into my room when I was uh, in high school, and it said, unfortunately, we don't have the room for you. Um, good luck on your endeavors. And so I was pretty, uh, pretty disappointed with that. A few weeks later, I got another letter saying that I was on the cusp, and if I went to this other school called New Mexico Military Institute, I and kept my grades up, I'd have a chance to go into the academy. So 
made it into the academy. From there, got selected for pilot training, went to pilot training. It really clicked for me. I was never a great student. I was a decent athlete, but not a great athlete. And flying, military flying was, was like merging both of those. And for some reason, it just really clicked with me. You really had to study and learn all the tactics, but you also uh, had to have good hands and to, uh, to be able to make good, quick decisions. And so that, that clicked for me and did well in pilot training, got selected for my first pick, the F-16, um, went out to, uh, to Luke Air Force Base, flew the F-16. And I mean, it's just an incredible experience to actually, you know, push the throttle forward, you know, have the afterburner light off behind you with the, with the force on your chest, just accelerating. The thing about these jets is as you go faster, you accelerate faster. So up to a point, but, uh, I mean, it was just the most incredible experience from there. Went to Korea, flew, uh, flew F-16s there, got selected to fly, uh, block fifties. That's a wild weasel mission. So in Top Gun, you know, all those, uh, those SAM sites, those surface air missiles lining the Canyon walls. My job was to go in and destroy those surface air missile sites, deployed to Afghanistan, and then, uh, got selected to fly the F-35, the newest supersonic stealth fighter for the air force and, uh, flew that until 2020, joined the reserves so that I could write this book, which, uh, you know, I think is, is really helping a lot of people out. It's doing really well out there and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about it, but that's kind of the path to, uh, to getting interested in decision-making and, uh, in human performance. Well, I love it. And I appreciate you sharing some background. I'm curious, this is your first book. If I'm, if I'm correct in the research, the art of clear thinking, this is obviously maybe a different in, endeavor. It seems very different than getting in the cockpit of a of a fighter jet. How does it feel to have this book out in the world? It's great. I mean, writing a book is is torture. I wrote every word of the book. Um, I it was really a six year journey when I started thinking about it. Then I started a podcast and then started social media stuff. Cause I realized you had to have a following to be able to write a book these days. The publishers don't really know how to sell books. They rely on their authors. So it was a long journey. The actual writing part, I wrote for over 500 days in a row in this office. So every single day, didn't skip a day, uh, four hours a day. Um, I would write typically about 500 words, but sometimes I get to 2000 and then the next day realize it was terrible and have to, you know, <laughs> delete it all. So it was this multi-year journey where there's no feedback cycle. That's one thing that we really stress as fighter pilots. Every time we go and fly, we'll get feedback on how we did and are able to get better. But this publisher is like, go off on your own for a year and write a book. And so that's what I did. And then, you know, they say in order to write a book, just write a crappy first draft. I did that, but that means nobody ever tells you, you have a crappy draft that you now have to, to take <laughs> to something good. So I went through nine revisions to, to make this thing as good as I possibly can make it. And, uh, and it's been amazing. It went, came out a couple of weeks ago. It was a wall street journal, number two bestseller. Uh, it's been selected as one of the top books uh, of the year by Amazon was selected as a must read by the next big idea club. So it's been great just seeing it get out there and helping people. Um, so couldn't be more proud of it. And, you know, I think that's, that's the, that's the most satisfying thing is to work years on a project really, you know, push yourself and then finally to see it get out there. Well, great. Well, congrats on that. I'm happy to happy to hear it's doing well. I'm curious, one more question on, um, and, and generally we start here with some sort of opening question, which I consider is um, something connected with like discerning our way definitely comes into this like um, thinking and, and choosing a particular path. So this example of 
you know, five years old, it was very clear. You, you know, you're at this air show, you sit in the cockpit, you're lit up and you have a lot of clarity of this is, you know, the path that I want to embark on. Was it a similar thing for, for writing this book? And also for the listeners that are maybe discerning a particular path, thinking about, you know, a project to do like a book or whatever it may be. Was, was there similarities there or how did those differ? I think it is similar. I think any anything worth doing takes a lot of effort and work. And so these long projects, if you want to, if you're a kid and want to become a doctor, that's a multi-decade uh, path. Same writing a book is is definitely at least a couple of years. So anything that you really want to do, I think success can be boiled down to just sacrificing short-term pain for long-term gain. So whether you're working out, anything you do is going to require a lot of sacrifice and discipline and dedication. And I don't think I'm a particularly good writer. I'm definitely not a fast writer. And so for me, it was just brute forcing it, coming out every day, sitting in this chair, <laughs> four hours, coming up with systems. I don't necessarily believe in specific goals. I, I believe in, in systems. So for me, that was optimizing the writing environment. So I would disconnect my internet. I, uh, you know, set up this office so there's no distractions. I wouldn't bring my phone out here. So I, I love coming up with different systems to, to optimize your performance. And that's something we really do a lot as fighter pilots, even though we're just sitting in a seat, you know, we can, you know, the G forces that we're pulling are extreme. And so we have to do a lot of stuff from the, a physiological standpoint and a mental standpoint. And, you know, just over the years, I've learned that really you can't increase your performance in just the span of a day. It's, it takes years to do that. So that's really the only path to, uh, to, uh, to mastery from my perspective. And so I just applied the same skills that I learned as a fighter pilot to writing and, uh, and seems to be doing well. Well, beautiful. And that's probably a great way to transition into the book. We generally start by maybe defining terms or talking about uh, terms that might come up. And you write, the most important part is being deliberate in making decisions and then debriefing afterward on how to improve. So maybe to start, could you say a bit about being deliberate in making decisions? Yeah, I think for a lot of us, we're overwhelmed with the number of decisions we have. And we kind of just have a, a, a scattershot of how we're making decisions. We don't put intentional thought into how we make them. And so the framework that I use is is breaking it down into assess, choose, and execute. So assessing the problem in front of you. If you don't have a high fidelity understanding of the problem, you're not going to be able to consistently make good decisions. After that, being able to come up with solutions, that involves a lot of creativity. A lot of organizations struggle with that. And then choosing the best decision. So choosing the best decision is actually pretty simple. It just comes down to finding the expected value. So what is the good that can happen from the decision? What's the probability of that happening? And then we assess the risk. What's the what's the bad that can happen? And what's the probability of that happening? So that's that's uh, how to choose. And then finally, executing. So executing has to do a lot with mental toughness. For us as fighter pilots, we're flying these high-pressure missions. Often there'll be a 1,000 people that have touched the mission before we get in the air. So spies on the ground, intelligence operators, um, satellite operators, tanker crews launching from other countries, all to get us over the target on time. So even though you can make a right decision, if you can't execute it, then it really doesn't mean anything. So that's kind of the the framework that I use to uh, to discuss decision making. And I think it's it's a critical skill. It's not really taught in most schools. I certainly didn't learn it in school. 
And I think it's becoming more and more important. So as a fighter pilot, essentially all I'm doing is I'm sitting in this, this tub of technology that amplifies everything I can do. I can fly a hundred times faster than I could by foot. I can carry far more. I can see out to the horizon, but we're all kind of living that life now with technology. The phone can do the job of dozens of people from a few years ago, cars, same thing. Um, your computer, same thing. So our decisions are being amplified. AI is on the horizon. I know there are uh, reports out at Silicon Valley that the next billion dollar company will be run by three or fewer people. So that's massive leverage that's applied to each decision that those three people are making. So there are a lot of similarities. And, you know, I go in the book about some technical details, like for instance, our human body only burns 90 watts of electricity. And yet the average Westerner burns 12,000 watts of electricity. That's powering the technology that's amplifying the decisions that we're making. So I think there's a lot of similarities from what I'm doing as a fighter pilot to what we all are doing with technology. And how about this idea of debriefing afterwards? You know, what is a debrief? What makes a good one? And, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. So if you ask any fighter pilot, what's the most critical part of learning to be a better pilot, they'll say the debrief. And so when we fly, we'll go out, we'll fly for typically an hour to an hour and a half. And when we come back, we'll spend anywhere from two to six hours debriefing that sortie. We'll break it down into every piece because it's, it's expensive flying these jets. The F-35 averages, depending on inflation, anywhere between 35000 and $50,000 an hour to fly. And sometimes we'll have dozens even close to 100 aircraft all flying at once. So it's really important to capture lessons learned so that you can get better over time. So we will spend two to six hours debriefing these sorties, coming up with everything that we did wrong, sometimes listening to the same radio call 15 times to understand how we can do it better the next time. And so, you know, they're, they're brutal debriefs. There's a lot of best practices for them. You know, by default, we want to shield our mistakes. That's just human nature. Our ego gets caught, caught up in that. So you have to develop systems to prevent that. And for us, that's rank. It's a nameless, rankless debrief. So rank comes off. Doesn't matter if you're the wing commander in charge of the entire base or the newest wingman, you're equally open to criticism and trying to get better. It's also sterile. So we're not trying to criticize the individual person, just the actions. Um, so there's a lot of different techniques that go into it, but ultimately we're trying to break things down into how we can get better. And I've been an instructor pilot for the last, uh, let's see, I guess seven or eight years or so. And so I've been flying with new students trying to get them better. So with new students, it can be a little challenging because you're also balancing their confidence. If you just break them down too much, then they lose confidence. And that's the number one thing to, to becoming a, a great pilot or great at anything. You have to have confidence in yourself, but you also have to be able to point out all the things that you did wrong so that you can get better, capture those lessons learned, review them prior to the next flight, and hopefully not make those mistakes the next time. It's so interesting. As you're describing that, it connects with something that has come up many times on the podcast previously, known as a philosophical journaling. There's many wisdom traditions that talk about this idea of at the, the end of the day, you know, looking back and maybe call it broadly speaking, like living an examined life, examining your actions against a particular set of virtues or principles. Um, but I'm curious to ask, maybe connected with uncertainty, you talked about this process of writing a book, that crappy first draft, and maybe sometimes you're just not aware of 
you know, if it's crappy, if it's good, how do you think about that of debriefing and maybe looking back when there's this uncertainty and you're maybe unsure of what, what meets the mark and what does not? So I think the the key there is relying on other people's mental models who've done it before. So just about anything mm. else else out there, somebody has done. Maybe not the exact combination that you're doing, but there are experts that have been great writers, experts that have been pilots. So relying on them for feedback. So for me, I had a, uh, a really uh, a great writer. He was he was in the actual Black Hawk Down. A man named Dan Schilling. He was a combat controller credited with seal, saving a, a SEAL Team 6 member and a Ranger. But he went on to write a great book called Alone at Dawn. And so he was kind of my mentor writing. So writing, you're off you know, in this desolate area. They've given you the keys to write this book and you're just you're just plugging away. So for me, it was relying on him to to help me through, uh, through some of these difficult uh, places. I also had an editor where I was sending some text to um, so I think just relying on other people, no matter what you're doing, there's probably been somebody that's done some sort of aspect of that. And that's what we rely on a lot as fighter pilots. So the typical progression for a fighter pilot is to start off as a wingman. You essentially are, are uh, worthless. So you've gone through all this training. You've uh, you know been the top of your class. And when you show up to the squadron, your number one job is to keep the snack bar stack, uh, stocked. That's, that's your primary job. You just follow your flight lead around do whatever they tell you to do. From there, after a couple of years, you progress to being a flight lead in charge of four other aircraft. And that's really where you start making a lot more decisions on your own. And then we don't even have a path for somebody to stay as a flight lead. So for us, the next progression is to become an instructor pilot. So you start becoming that mentor to other pilots. And about 80%, 90% of our sorties, when we're going out, we're trying to get other people better. So we're upgrading them from a wingman to a flight lead or a flight lead to an instructor pilot. And so we serve as those mentors to, uh, to help correct those problems, because you don't see a lot of the problems you make. You need somebody else to, to point those out and to show how those dots connect to, uh, to becoming great at whatever you're doing. And how do you think about maybe dealing with those mistakes you talk about as an instructor and students and confidence? I'm assuming there's times where you just make mistakes. And you talk about uh, this a little bit in the book of how, you know, obviously a lot of challenging and difficult situations, but how do you, how do you think about that around mistakes? So mistakes are good. Mistakes are showing that you're pushing yourself. So if you ever have a, a flight or do anything where you're not making mistakes, you're not, you're not trying hard enough. And so that's mm -hmm. what we try to do in training. We, we have a saying, you don't rise to the level of your expectation. You fall to the level of your preparation. And so we will always push ourselves to to make mistakes. So the, the debriefs are mostly negative, not in a, in a negative way of like just berating people, but in picking through all the things that we could do better. So I think, uh, you know, you're never going to have a perfect sortie, no matter what you do, you're never going to do it perfectly for us though. And, and I work a lot with new pilots and these are some of the best pilots in the world. They're in their early to mid twenties though. And so for them, a lot of times the train will fall off the tracks. They'll make a mistake and then they'll be spending mental bandwidth worrying about that mistake. And at the speeds we're flying, you know, if you boil a fighter pilot's job down, it's to make decisions, thousands of decisions, each flight often with incomplete information and lives on the line. And so the speeds we're flying a mile, every three seconds, you got to be continuing to make good decisions. And if you spend any cognitive bandwidth on how you screwed up, 
and go down that rabbit hole of, oh, I might have hooked this ride. I might not become a fighter pilot. Whatever your brain goes to, that's soaking up bandwidth that could be used to help you get out of that mistake. And so one of the things that new pilots struggle with is they'll make a mistake because they're not used to to making mistakes uh, at this level and they'll kick themselves and then the, the, it'll just snowball and they'll quickly make a few more mistakes and they'll put themselves into a position where they can hurt themselves. And so that's kind of my job as a fighter pilot instructor to, uh, to help them work through that, to focus on the present moment. And for, I think it goes back to the debrief. If you have a dedicated time to debrief, no matter what you're doing, you can say, I'm not going to worry about the mistakes now. I'm going to worry about them later. Because if you worry about the mistakes in the moment, you're using up that bandwidth that you need. And we have another saying as fighter pilots that as soon as you put on your helmet, you lose 20 IQ points. What looks simple on the ground at 1G at zero miles an hour is much more difficult when you're in the heat of the moment. People are relying on you. So so that's where that preparation comes in. So I think there's a there's a few aspects to that. Beautiful. And this acronym that you brought up, ACE, assess, choose, and execute, what would you say are some common obstacles or challenges that that come into a picture around that first A, that assess stage? Yeah, being able to assess the problem in front of you comes down to being able to prioritize the most important variables. And so I talk in the book about how our brains are hardwired for linear thinking. So if you walk 30 steps away, you're now... 30 feet away. So we really don't think in terms of exponential. And when you start amplifying things with technology, whether it's speed, whether it's processing power, you're really, if you, if you have that mistake, if you're thinking linearly instead of exponentially or the other power laws, law of diminishing return, long tail power laws, then you're going to be making some mistakes. So one of the examples I talked through, well, two of the examples, one is from a flying example. Uh, we have a lot of steps um, in the checklist, if we have to eject, there's a lot of different things that we have to do if our plane's on fire and we need to get out. But the number one thing we can do is just to slow down. So the, at the speeds we're flying, if you're flying Mach 1.6, the speed or the force on your body is 300 times the force of, uh, you know, highway speeds for a car. So it'll just mm -hmm. rip your body apart. So for us, the number one thing, even though there are dozens of things on the checklist is just to slow down. And so, I also talk about another example where uh, things weren't linear, but it's a business example. And it, it was uh, Excite.com, if you can remember back in the day, it was almost like Yahoo.com. They failed to buy Google for $750,000 in, uh, mm. in the 1990s. So I call that the trillion dollar miss. And it was because the CEO didn't understand the exponential scaling of the internet. So what they were doing is they were hiring teams of journalists to review all the websites because... The, the the World Wide Web at the time, it was chaos. There was a lot of spam out there. And so they were hiring these teams of journalists to review all the websites. It wasn't sustainable. Um, I think today, if you were to use the same approach, you'd need a team of 500,000 journalists reviewing all the websites. So Google used a, a way that was scalable versus Excite.com. They used a different way. So they ended up imploding and Google obviously came, went off to, uh, to become Google. So I think being able to understand those key variables that drive a system are the most critical part to uh, being able to assess the problem. One of my favorite chapters in the book was probably on creativity and clear thinking. It seems like that's something that we maybe don't often think of when it comes to the art of clear thinking of, of creativity being important. So how do you see that 
connected. Could you say more? Yeah, I think creativity is 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 incredible. You can have a, a f- huge return on investment if you just spend more time uh, brainstorming. So I think as organizations, as people, it's tough to track progress when you're in the brainstorming phase. So people automatically want to jump to the first solution that pops in their brain and start making progress on that idea. So I talk about spending a little bit more time in the brainstorming phase Now, as an Air Force, for the last 30 years or so, we've used a planning framework called effects-based planning. And so that's separating the means of achieving the effect, so an aircraft, from the effect that we're trying to drive. So, for instance, disabling the communication. So if you've seen the, the wars of the last 30 years or so from the Gulf War on, we have that shock and awe campaign in the first opening days to disable the centers of gravity. So we're trying to disrupt the communication. We're trying to shut down their air defense system, which is a little bit different than how we conducted wars in the past. In the past, we used a lot of force on force attrition. So if the enemy sent up a hundred aircraft, we're going to send up a hundred aircraft too, to try and take them on. So aircraft versus aircraft. But if you can remove the effects from what you're trying to, uh, to drive that effect from, then you can find a lot more creative solutions. So one of the examples I talk in the book um, is if you are, for instance, looking for a car to uh, to, to drive you to, uh, to your job, you should break it down into the effect needed. So where do you need to be? How much time do you need to be there? So break it down into, I guess, as a scientist, you would say first principle uh, science. So break it down into the, the smallest effect that you need and that might allow you to come up with different solutions, some rideshare solutions, some remote work solutions, maybe a bus. Um, you know, that's that's the way to come up with more creativity is to separate the the dogmatic means from the effect that you're trying to drive. How do some of these um, ideas and concepts show up in daily life for you? Has the process of writing this book over many years, do you think it's influenced the the day to day? Certainly, I, I don't think necessarily the book, although my writing has gotten much, much better. So even though it was an extremely painful process, I'm very grateful for it because if you do something every day for 500 days, you're going to get a lot better at it. And so um, I think from that perspective, uh, I became a lot better of a writer. Um, but most of the concepts I was using as a fighter pilot, and definitely they apply to the day to day. So in terms of being able to handle high stress environments, being able to uh, regulate my emotion. As, as fighter pilots, we have uh, we'll airborne refuel. So we'll actually touch another aircraft while they're transferring uh, fuel to us going 350 miles an hour. So we have a lot of students that, uh, you know, try to what we call squeeze the paint out of the stick. So they get really nervous. So we do a lot of different things to uh, regulate our emotion, which I think is a critical skill for, for all of us. If you are uh, not in the optimal zan- zone of performance. If you are too stressed out or if you're too relaxed, you're not going to uh, be able to uh, to achieve what you're capable of doing. So when you're too stressed out, you need to find different techniques to regulate yourself to be in that optimal zone where you can make good decisions. So I think that's a, that's a critical skill. That's decision-making framework. I never had a framework for making decisions really before joining the Air Force. And it's pretty amazing what they're able to do to take somebody who's never flown and within a couple of years, they'll be flying combat missions on the other side of the world. So I think there's a lot of, lot of carryover that has applied from my flying life to my day-to-day life in terms of the book, probably just uh, reinforcing discipline, you know, just sitting in one spot doing one thing. It's kind of a meditative practice. 
um, on, on that note, uh, I, I, I like to meditate. I like to kind of clear my brain. There's a lot of, you know, junk out there, I think for a lot of us and being able to focus is important because if you're able to focus, you're able to focus on those few key variables that are important to be able to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve. And so, uh, meditating has been important for me. That started when I was in, in combat. Um, and you know, the days were pretty stressful and that helped me to, uh, to really, uh, shed that excess stress and then to be able to focus, uh, on the task at hand. You've got a ton of, um, memorable sayings and stories all throughout the book. One I made a note of in uh, the uh, chapter on assess says the key is to not let yourself focus on just one data source at the expense of the rest. Something we call getting sucked into the soda straw, which probably connects with what you were talking about there. How do you help people as an instructor, you're working with students, you know, how do you help them avoid this? So we call that our cross check. So we're finding those key variables that we need to focus on and moving our cross check through it. So we don't multitask that well as humans. So you want to focus on one thing for us, it's the airspeed, then the altitude, then our targeting pod, then our radar. So you're going through that cross check and it changes depending on the phase of flight. So depending on the phase of flight, depending on what you want to achieve, our cross check will change. So it, you know, you don't want to just focus on a few variables or one variable because the other ones will fall out of your cross check and then you won't be able to, uh, to optimize the system. So for me, it comes down to being able to, to optimize the whole over the, uh, the parts. And so I think, uh, for fighter pilots, I think for individuals being able to optimize their cross check to focus on those few key variables is, uh, is the key to being able to assess the problem correctly. And is there anything that comes to mind for, for listeners out there of, you know, incorporating that into their day-to-day -day life? Like what, what would a cross check maybe, maybe look like for the, for the rest of us? Yeah. So that actually pairs into a, a chapter I wrote on Eisenhower's decision to delay D-Day by a day. So, uh, he delayed D-Day by a day and then he chose to execute even though, though there's a very narrow window in the weather. And so he was a master at being able to, uh, understand the difference between what was important versus urgent. So I talk about this quadrant that you can make in the book of what's important versus urgent that comes up with four quadrants. We all know something important and urgent is something that needs to be done. That's the typical fire drills that come out. What we struggle with as humans is to understand the difference between what's urgent and what's important. And so you can think of what's urgent are just the, the things that are trying to suck your time away, the meeting invites, the emails, the notifications, those things suck our attention away from what's important uh, towards what's urgent. And so I talk in the book, there's a, a, a study done that shows that if you can just put your tasks into one of these four quad quadrants, you can increase your ability to prioritize by over 60%. And so just writing down your tasks in these quadrants, and if you're able to forecast out long enough, you shouldn't have a lot of those fire drills. So you should be able to put the tasks into the urgent box or the important box and be able to focus on the important box. And for me, the writing is a good example for that, you know, disconnecting from the internet, leaving my phone out of my office so I could focus for four hours on what was important versus the, the urgent emails that we all get from, uh, you know, constantly. So I think that was, uh, that's one of the most important skills that people can use to be able to, uh, 
to assess the problem correctly and then to be able to choose the correct course of action and execute. Beautiful. And, and something we ask, uh, I'd say just about every guest that comes on is maybe connecting some of these ideas to, to wisdom. You know, how do you think about or define wisdom in, in daily life? Um, what, what comes to mind hazard when you, when you think about clear thinking and, you know, wisdom in daily life, if you will. Yeah. So I think the first thing that comes to mind is information does not equal wisdom. So there are a lot of people out there that know a lot of facts that doesn't necessarily mean that they are wise. I think wise is understanding the long-term implications of your decisions and your actions. And that's actually one thing that, that we really went in depth in, in the F-35. So I helped to develop the syllabus for the F-35, and we really wanted to find ways to streamline students to become expert F-35 pilots as quickly as possible. And so that's one thing we separated. We kind of took it, if you look at the model, it almost looks like a tree. So the, the leaves are the facts and the trunk of the tree are the concepts. So concepts are far more important than the facts. I think uh, a lot of organizations, including as fighter pilots in the past, we focused too much on the facts. We had the new wingman memorize as many facts as possible, but the facts, you know, for us would change quite a bit because it's based on intelligence. And so as soon as those facts changed, kind of what we were doing went out the window. So we tried to focus primarily on concepts and interlocking those concepts into the framework of the student's understanding. So, you know, not one concept wasn't enough. If you can interlock, for instance, us, our air to air doctrine with our air to ground doctrine and interlock those two together, then you're building a more complete mental model of your understanding of the world. And that can help you when you encounter a lot more uh, edge cases, uh, as we call it. So if you find yourself into a, a situation where there's not a predefined tactic, you're able to a lot uh, more effectively come up with your own tactic as opposed to just memorizing the list of, you know, 500 tactics that we have for, you know, an air to air engagement or something similar. How about this idea of maybe interconnectedness or interdependence? I was, um, struck by some of these examples that you provide in the book of how many people are involved, whether in missions and campaigns. I think um, sometimes we can think about this book written by a, a fighter pilot, maybe this, these few individuals and miss the big picture of the interconnectedness that's going on with so many other technologies and people. Oh, yeah. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception of air combat is we send up our best pilot in our best plane, and it's a 1v1 cage match versus the enemy's best pilot in their best plane. It's not at all like that. So Top Gun just sending in four F-18s, that's not how we fight wars. We're sending up hundreds of assets. So all kinds of different aircraft, and they're not just aircraft. So we have assets in space. We have assets on the ground. We have uh, cyber assets as well. So as fighter pilots, we're planning these really complex missions that are taking place sometimes days in the future, sometimes years in the future. So it's a lot of mission planning, project management uh, type thinking to be able to optimize the uh, the whole. And so you want to optimize and bring in as many of those assets, assets as possible and use them as effectively as possible. So uh, for us, it's uh, being able to, to to understand what those all bring to the table now, a lot of it comes back to uh, kind of, I guess, more soft science in the past. I think a lot of people think of fighter pilots as as arrogant, but we try to separate that from arrogant, 
from confident. So if you're arrogant and you come in and you say your platform is the best, F35 is better than everybody else, you're going to alienate this team. So you're coming in with hundreds of people looking at you and you need to, uh, to optimize the, uh, the, the assets and the tactics to achieve overall mission success. So you need to have confidence that you know what you're doing, but you can't just come in there as uh, being arrogant and alienate your own team. So there's a lot that plays into that. Um, a lot of project management concepts. One example would be the uh, good idea cutoff line. So when you have a bunch of these type A people, hundreds of people coming all together, everybody wants to, to get their idea out there and they're very smart people. But what we've realized is that you need to set a, a good idea cutoff line, usually about three quarters, two thirds to three quarters of the way through the, uh, the planning, because after that point, it needs to focus on execution. You've moved from the choosing of the tactic to the execution, execution phase. And uh, if you're changing things at the last minute, you're going to have a lot of issues. And we've seen that play out a lot on a lot of missions. So being able to freeze the plan at some point and execute with what you have, that'd be an example of uh, one of the techniques that we use. And I, I love that. A good idea cutoff. I'm curious for, for any listeners that's thinking about, you know, making a decision in their particular life, choosing a path, whatever it may be. How do you think about applying that in from an individual perspective in life choices? So I think coming up with the expected value. So coming up with the the, the few decisions, you know, that, that your life can go, where you want to live, what job you want to do, your partner, coming up with the expected value of what is the good that's going to happen, what's the probability of that happening, minus the bad times the probability of that happening. Now, you're not going to have exact numbers for this, and nobody does. So uh, I think one of the themes of the book is to if you've built yourself up as an expert, if you've learned these concepts properly to trust yourself, a lot of people in a lot of organizations like to outsource their decision-making to models or committees. And those can have, you know, equally, if not worse, uh, decisions than if you come up with expected value on your own. So I think you should come up with that on your own. Uh, a couple of, I guess, heuristics that I have. One is to do the thing that's, that's riskier. Now, obviously, if the expected value of one, one decision is 75 and the other is 25, it, it's an easy call. But if you have two decisions, one's you know 55, the other is 50, go with what is more risky, I think is or more uncertain. So I think as humans, we have an aversion to both of those things. And in, in modern life, I think this is one thing combat taught me. Most things aren't that risky. Most things aren't that that uh, catastrophic in in the modern world. If you, you know, it, you're not going to get eaten by a lion. So things are pretty generally pretty pretty uh, easy and pretty um, not that harmful for us. So go with what's risky. Go with what has the most uncertainty because most people are deathly afraid of those things. So if you have two equal value decisions, go with the riskier thing because uh, that will set yourself apart. Beautiful. And one more question to throw at you before we wrap it up is if there's anyone listening out there that is looking for maybe the smallest practical bit of wisdom to think, think clearly in daily life, what, what comes to mind? You know, that's, that's a good question. And that's, that can be challenging. So I think the number one thing is getting out there and making making decisions on your own. So I think 
for instance, flying is a great way to learn how to make better decisions because as soon as you get past the solo stage, you're making decisions on your own and you are fully responsible for getting yourself back on the ground. So I think a lot of people like to uh, spend too much time in the decision-making process. So um, no decision is a decision and it's usually the worst one you can make. We're all inundated with a lot of decisions. So being able to get out there. So I would say, you know, it's a combination. You want to be reading, understanding, studying things. But if I had to choose one, I would say instead of um, instead of like going to school and learning how to do business, I think just starting your own business, you'll make far more decisions. You'll actually be out there on the front lines making those decisions and you'll get far better that way. So it's finding the right balance of that, but uh, never shying away from having to uh, to make decisions on your own to have the buck stop with you. Mm, beautiful. Well, this has been great, Hazard. Again, the book is The Art of Clear Thinking. Where do you point listeners that are interested in learning more? So the book is available everywhere. So it's been amazing to see the book in in all these airport bookstores. So it's in Heathrow, it's in LAX if you're passing through there, but it's also available on all the online stores, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Um my social media is uh, at Hazard Lee on all the platforms with an S, so H A S A R D Lee L E E. So try to put some wisdom on there, and also some interesting things about aviation. Um, for instance, went to the centrifuge, and it's this giant arm that spins around and uh, puts you up to, to nine Gs. And so did a did a uh, well. First of all, put a UFC fighter in there because we wanted to see like how. Uh, how a, a, a peak elite human uh, in peak performance would, would do without necessarily all the techniques that they've learned. So you can, you can see that video on there. So uh, yeah. So I think those are some of the spots. Well, beautiful. We'll link everything in the show notes. So it's easy to find hazard Lee. Thank you so much for coming on in search of wisdom. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.